Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. In George M. Cohan's stirring World War I song, Over There, the chorus tells Europe that the Yanks are coming, meaning American soldiers from any of the 48 states. But here in North Carolina, Yankees refers only to some Americans, those from north of the Mason-Dixon line. Travel up to the Mid-Atlantic and you find that Yankees means New Englanders. Go to Massachusetts, Yankees are the people in Maine, But in Portland, Maine, Yankee means those folks who live further down east in rural Maine. Why is everyone reluctant to claim the nickname for themselves? Perhaps it's because of all the bad things Confederates said about Yankees during the Civil War. We'll hear about those bad things and find out why they were important from Professor George Rabel, author of Damn Yankees, Demonization and Defiance in the Confederate South, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex at 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not, however, on campus of East Carolina University, but still glad to be employed there, but not speaking for them, nor will my guest speak for any institution other than himself. That's how we always do it here, get our legal things squared away, and then talk about the interesting things that are being published in Civil War Studies. Tonight, uh, here at Civil War Talk Radio headquarters, I am basking in the glow of Michigan's basketball demolition of Michigan State last night by, I don't know, was it 75 points? It was a big win. Uh, And I do that because here at East Carolina University, basketball season is a time to 
bow our heads in shame and defer to UNC Chapel Hill and Duke, the powers that rule this state in basketball, and we just sit here in Greenville and wait for spring football when we can prepare for the sport in which we compete with those schools on much more even terms. So I'm enjoying the Michigan victory, and it's a good thing to have the glow of victory to keep me warm tonight as I learned today that our furnace, uh, apparently 23 years old, has a cracked heat exchanger, and it is time to replace it. So this is as good a time as any to remind you of the Civil War Talk Radio Book and Libation Fund. Not that contributions to that could be used to pay for a new furnace. Uh, that, that would be an absurd expectation. But the books and libations will be more welcome than ever as distractions from the financial reality of home ownership. So please consider going to impedimentsofwar.org, where you can find the link that allows you to contribute to the Civil War Book Fund. It's not a tax-deductible contribution because you don't know what kind of book I'm going to buy with it, or even if I'll use it on books at all. And speaking of books while you're there, click on any of the books that you see listed as being written by someone who's about to be on the show, and that'll take you to the Amazon page for that book. You can buy it there, and by doing that, we get a pass-through click, which helps the efforts of Mark Gaffney, who keeps impedimentsofwar.org alive and thriving and telling us who's going to be on the show next week, which in this case is Chuck Rush, author of Imperfect Union, A Father's Son, a Father's Search for His Son in the Aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg. And then on the 22nd of February, it's 2017 we're talking about here, we'll have Christopher Phillips, The Rivers Ran Backward, The Civil War and the Remaking of the American Middle Border. That's a listener's suggestion. On March 1st, we'll have Andrew Bledsoe, new book, uh, Citizen Officers, the Union and Confederate Volunteer Junior Officer Corps. Very interested to find out what his approach will be with that. No live show on March 8th. Get caught up listening to the old ones while I bask in the glory of spring break. My family will be off visiting younger daughter who's on uh, semester abroad in London, so my other daughter and my wife will be going to see her, and I will spend spring break here because I've got to save my money for a new furnace, gosh darn it. Uh, March 15th, Carol Reardon returns, does not return, she's not been to the show yet, in spite of numerous invitations, we could never quite coordinate, I'm delighted that she'll be here on March 15th, she's written many things, well, we'll talk about a lot of them. So your suggestions for guests are always welcome. Please consider sending those in. The email address is given during the show, during the breaks. I get my guest ideas from all over the place. Often listeners send them in. Um, You never know where the next suggestion will come from. This past week, for example, uh, I heard a prominent American politician talking about Black History Month. And he said, uh, quote, Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is getting recognized more and more, I notice. So that has prompted me to see about getting Frederick Douglass on the show later this season. I've got my people working on that. I'll let you know how that works out. Well, rather than go further down that particular rabbit hole, let us venture into the 
comparatively calm and measured world of 19th century political rhetoric. In particular, the kinds of language used by white Southerners to describe Americans from the North. That is the subject of Damn Yankees, Demonization and Defiance in the Confederate South, by our guest tonight, Professor George Rabel, who joins us for the first time since, I think, 2008. Let's find out what he has been up to. George, are you there? Good to talk to you, Jerry. Ah, welcome back. It, is, it has been a while. Uh, this book is a, a, a fascinating piece. The first thing I want to share with the listeners about it is that it's a, a published version of your Walter Linwood Fleming Lectures in Southern History at, at uh, LSU, Louisiana State which is an extremely distinguished lecture series. Uh, Avery Craven, C. Van Woodward, John Hope Franklin, Drew Faust, uh, uh, one could go on. There's some of the best-known names in American history. So just congratulations on, on joining that very elite company. Well, thank you. I was also happened to be the first LSU PhD ever to deliver those lectures. So it was a, a special honor to go back and also be there with some of the faculty who were there when I was a graduate student. Wow. So, so you're proving uh, that, that long lingering doubt we all maintain that our advisors don't really think we know what we're doing. Uh, that's a pretty good way to show them you did okay. It was, and it was a special honor. Uh, the first lecture was introduced by William Cooper, who is essentially a second mentor to me yes. at LSU and to whom I dedicated both the lectures and the book. Well, another another great name in American history. Mm-hmm. So, last time you were on, we were talking about your book about the Battle of Fredericksburg, and I think one of the questions I asked was what moved you to write about a battle that most authors have shied away from. It's one-sided, it's uh, horrifically bloody, but really indecisive in terms of, of shaping the outcome of the war. And you, uh, as you did in the book, showed many uh, unexpected uh, ramifications of the battle that are very much worth studying. So let me ask the same kind of question. What what brought you to this topic of Confederate vituperation? Well, receiving the invitation for the Fleming Lectures, of course, is a, is a terrific honor. But you bask in that honor for a couple minutes, and then you <laughs> say, okay, I've got a lecture about something. Um, and I batted around a number of ideas and consulted with some friends and, and colleagues in the Civil War field. Um, and, I, and I think this whole question of Confederate vituperation, as you put it, uh, really was connected with a number of other types of work I had done. I'd, I'd studied Confederate politics. I'd studied Confederate women. Um, I'd studied some military history at Fredericksburg. After the Fredericksburg book, I, I wrote a rather long book on religion uh, during the Civil War. And all of those topics, in some ways, fed into the the whole question of anti-Yankee invective in the Confederacy. And I had, on a sort of desultory basis, picked up uh, tidbits here and there on the subject uh, over the years. So I, I had some foundation when I was starting out. Uh, but then, of course, digitized history made it, even, made it even better because I could search the newspapers uh, effectively along with other uh, online sources. And so there's just a treasure trove of, uh, 
uh, of information, and I thought, well, this might be an interesting topic uh, to pursue, because obviously how you demonize uh, an enemy in war is important uh, in terms of the course of the war, the length of the war, and the aftermath of the war. Well, that that's really anticipates the next question, which is what what is important about this? It's it's entertaining, certainly. The, the language is, is extraordinarily colorful, but is it what is it more than mere words? Why? Why? How does it affect these things? I, I think I, I think it is. Uh, you're right. The language is entertaining, and on one level, I can't think of anything I've written that I had more fun writing uh, mm-hmm. and researching. And it it makes for it made for wonderful what I thought were pretty successful lectures at LSU, and it's certainly good for Civil War roundtable talks and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's also a serious, a very serious, and ultimately a deadly topic. Uh, because how you def- define the enemy uh, determines how you conduct the war, how long you conduct the war, uh, the nature of the peace. Uh, uh, it, I think it shaped the course of Reconstruction. I, I argue it lengthened the course of the the war itself. Uh, I really can't prove that. I don't think there's any way to scientifically uh, prove that. But when you cast the enemy in such dark hues, it seems to me logically to follow from that that you you continue fighting, perhaps even after hope of military success has long vanished. And and you you cite I think Jill Lepore uh, in your at, at the beginning of your book her work on King Philip's War, where she argues the English defeated the Indians twice, once militarily, and then by writing the history of it, they get their story told. And you seem to be saying, in some ways, the same thing about the, the Confederates. They they don't give up their definition of, of the Yankee after the war. They continue to push that for another generation. No, their definition of the Yankee preceded the war, developed during the war, and continued and continued long after the war, really into into our own time. I mean, we we could both cite numerous examples of that. In fact, I recently gave a talk at the Atlanta Civil War Roundtable, and one of the members came up to me after the talk and told me a story about his grandfather, whom he saw one day helping a stranded motorist change a tire, and he noticed that the grandfather had gone the rear of the vehicle before helping the fellow change the tire, and he asked his grandfather why he did that. Well, it was to check the license plate, because he didn't want to help change a tire on a damn Yankees car. <laughs> wow. It, I, who, may, maybe you recall this, I'm trying to think where I heard it somewhere, somebody who said they, they grew up in the South and they were you know, 16 years old before they realized that damn Yankee was two separate words. Yes, yes, that's a, that's a commonplace. A commonplace uh, uh, saying. So, um, so no, this has hardly gone away. Uh, but you say it preceded the Civil War, and you, you cite a lot of different kinds of sources, but it did raise for me the question of how universal this kind of language was. Was this something that, that especially before the war, is just... Uh, intellectuals writing in DuBose magazine or, or newspaper editors, or is this really, does, how far through through society does this percolate? I think that's a very 
Good question, though a difficult one. Uh, I think it's less pervasive before the war. I think you put your finger on an important distinction. Certainly it was the uh, the sort of province of, of Southern intellectuals to define the enemy. Though it's interesting, I think you could certainly make an argument that it, it, it trickled down as well because as soon as the war breaks out, there's a widespread expectation of how the Yankees will behave, uh, including, as I point out several, at several places in the book, talk of Yankee atrocities before the Yankees had actually committed any atrocities. Uh, now, is it, it, is it as pervasive before the war as it was during the war or even after the war? I, I, I think not, and it would be easy to it would be easy to exaggerate. Uh, and certainly, you can't say like uh, Alfred Iverson uh, says at the Senate, which is the opening anecdote in the book. I don't think you can say that in a broad brush way that that Southerners simply hate Northerners. I think it's a little early to to say that, but that hatred does become ever more pervasive during the war itself. So, this is something that. That if if not universally shared, the the pump has been primed, so that when the war breaks out, Southerners, uh, white Southerners in particular, are, are ready to expect the worst of the North, and they they certainly begin describing it, whether it's happening or not. What we'll do now is take a short break. Come back. I want to ask you, uh, George, about what what it is they're saying. What is the content of this this kind of uh, anti-Yankee rhetoric that we see? We'll find out. What's Wrong with the Yankee Nation when we come back talking tonight with George Rabel, author of Damn Yankees. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z 
g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with George Rabel, author of Damn Yankees, Demonization and Defiance in the Confederate South. We talked a bit in the first segment about how even before the Civil War, there was a great deal of writing, uh, of negative writing about Northerners in the South, the, the perception that there was a difference between the two societies. And George, I wanted to ask you about some specifics uh, of that. What uh, This could take the next hour, so I'll ask you to, to be concise. What are What's wrong with the Yankee nation in the, the eyes of uh, Confederate writers? Well, we might begin with a phrase that actually the British invented, the universal Yankee nation, uh, uh, which, was a, which was a sly kind of criticism, but perhaps more of a compliment that Americans were people who were clever, uh, especially when it came to business. Um, and this was taken up by, I think, Americans in general as a sort of compliment on their national character. Now, increasingly, I think, by the 1840s, uh, Southerners used the phrase so-called Yankee nation, uh, to which they attached all kinds of um, negative characteristics, including sharp business practice, uh, the Yankee reputation for squeezing a nickel, uh, for cheating people, uh, the apocryphal story of the Yankee peddler who, who stole the woman's counterpane off her bed and then resold it to her. Uh, that sort of thing. So sharp business practice, uh, to the point of cheating, would be a uh, would certainly be one of the one of the critical characteristics. But then it then it would go into almost any negative adjective you could you could name: uh, cowardice, religious infidelity, barbarism, destructiveness. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I mean, they they just piled on the epithets, nouns, and adjectives. It, I thought it was interesting that uh, some of them are ones that we might not that we might find surprising. For example, uh, one of the, the sins of Northern society that you cite that you found in, in these horses is uh, democracy. Too much democracy. Yes. Now that's more of an <coughs> excuse me. That's more of an elite critique. In mm-hmm. fact, you can't push that one. You can't push that one too far. Because if you're trying to rally people in general to the Confederate cause, uh, it's difficult to push that too far because if you come off as anti-democratic, uh, the people in the ranks, particularly the yeomanry, are going to say, wait a minute, you know, we're not trying to establish a monarchy here. Um, so that was really stuff that appeared in the pages of DuBose Review, the Southern Literary Messenger, and really only early in the war. Uh, and they really, they really toned that down pretty quickly. Even the newspaper editors don't rail against democracy very much. Uh, they do, I guess another elite uh, criticism is the use of historical analogies, uh, the, the Puritans against the Cavaliers. And this I found a little surprising because I grew up in the, the upper Midwest, the sort of extended New England, as, as some historians portray it, where the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock are good guys, and uh, the Mayflower is the beginning of all kinds of American virtues. But some of the Confederates you describe 
see the Puritans quite differently. Sure, they see them as uh, religious bigots. Uh, they talk about witch-burning uh, Puritans, even though the witches in America were hanged, not burned. Um, <laughs> and, and they have a contradictory uh, image of those, of those Puritans. They, on the one hand, they see them as religious bigots, and on the other hand, they see them as religious infidels. And you might ask how that can be. Well, they would argue that the Puritan, the Puritan stock uh, came eventually to reject the Bible, uh, New Englanders lapsing into Unitarianism and worse. Uh, and so you can sort of take your choice. And a lot of Confederate propagandists really wanted to have it both ways, that the Yankee stock were religious bigots on the one hand and infidels on the other. There's that's a thread that runs through the the examples you cite of uh, inconsistency, to put it uh, generously. Uh, the, the Yankees can be guilty of two two quite opposite things at once. They are uh, very you know, fierce and bloodthirsty and brutal, but they're also cowardly. Uh, they are irreligious, but they are also too religious. Uh, that doesn't seem to slow slow them down. Let me ask you about. Where where do you find these things? The, the ones we mentioned so far, these elite critiques you might find in uh, magazines, as you point out, or, or books. But what other kinds of sources did you use to, uh, to to try to take the temperature of the Confederacy on this topic? I used a lot of uh, soldier letters and diaries, civilian letters and diaries, a wealth of newspapers, because some of that elite critique also enters into the into the into the newspapers, including denunciations of Puritanism. Uh, the, you mentioned the question of cowardice that uh, pervades, uh, though increasingly it. it in, in fact, at one at one point, a soldier says, "Well, Puritan stock will fight. <laughs> Enough casualties have been <laughs> inflicted." And so there was a sort of shift. Several people have asked me, "Well, does this anti-Yankee invective does it is it change during the war?" It doesn't change a whole lot, but some things do change, and the cowardice element does change. Uh, the Yankees were were defined early in the war as physical cowards, but as the war went on, increasingly it, that shifted to moral cowardice, barbarous behavior, destruction of property, attacks on women and children, that sort of thing. Is that one of the examples where the 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 propaganda intended? Or to perhaps to hearten one's troops or uh, you know, give give confidence to your own side backfires uh, uh, by giving people a sense of overconfidence. The Yankees are cowardly; they won't fight, uh, and, and then you get sadly disillusioned in 1861. Exactly. One of the things I was interested in looking at was uh, Confederate estimates of of literally ratios. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many Yankees can one Confederate whip? Two? Five? Some said ten. Um, you know, and obviously there's, you know, exaggeration, braggadocio, and that sort of thing. But, you know, such claims crop up often enough, especially early in the war, that the naive and unsuspecting might well march into battle taking that, taking that, uh, taking that seriously. And you're right. It, you, you put your finger on a very important word, overconfidence. And I think one of the things the Confederates suffer from, especially uh, by early 1863 in the aftermath of, of, of Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, 
I think, is overconfidence. And some would say they, they suffer from overconfidence. Some of them suffer from overconfidence almost to the end, the diehards at least. No, they just cannot believe that they're going to, to lose this war uh, in this fashion. Exactly, because, of the Yang- because how can we lose to such a despicable, degraded race? That's exactly the that's exactly the case. And in the last chapter of the book, I talked about the fear of subjugation, uh, which seemed the ultimate horror to be subjugated to the Yankees. But the the early on, the assertion is we cannot possibly be subjugated by this people. It almost becomes an axiom of political science. They say a free people cannot be subjugated. Uh, period. Uh, and we certainly can't be be subjugated by these by these cowardly, uh, inferior Yankees. One of the ways you suggest that Southerners can reconcile the fact of the battlefield where the Yankees seem to be fighting pretty hard with the desire to uh, attribute nothing good to Yankees is, is that the soldiers on the battlefield aren't actually Yankees in the sense of these uh, uh, dishonest, hypocritical New Englanders the dishonest, hypocritical New Englanders have got a bunch of other people to do their fighting for them. And uh, the, the ranks in blue are filled with foreigners and mercenaries. And so, that word mercenary is very important. It's important in two senses, in fact. <laughs> um, when they talk about Yankee mercenaries, they're talking about northern soldiers in general who fight only for their pay. Mm. Southerners are so, fighting for their rights, for noble causes, but, but Yankees are fighting... Uh, only for pay. Ironically, my friend Bill Marvel is, is, has just written a, uh, a new book uh, arguing for the importance of pay and northern soldier motivation. So I think that'll be a very interesting study. But they're also, the Yankees are also mercenary in a second sense, the one you alluded to. Uh, if you read Confederate newspapers and civilian accounts as well, you would think that the northern armies consisted mostly of, of Irish and Germans. Uh, that these were immigrant. These were immigrant armies. In fact, one woman claimed that Yankee casualty figures were always too low because they really didn't count the Irish and German casualties. They only they only counted the real Yankee uh, dead, wounded, and missing. That's an interesting point. That they you can draw this contrast between Southerners. Uh, clearly fighting for a noble cause, defending their homeland. There's, it, it's very easy to understand what might motivate a Southern person to fight in, in such a struggle. And I find even today in, in talking with undergraduates in class, trying to convey the motivation of the Union soldier is much more complex, especially after you move beyond the idea that the, the North went to war to, to end slavery, which few historians would argue any longer was the the initial motivation although that certainly becomes one as the war develops the power of union as a an ideological motive is much more subtle and and hard to grasp for today's audience it seems to me and apparently was hard to grasp for for southerners as well it was i mean they could not understand uh how the northern soldier could be properly motivated uh, they didn't believe these pleas of union. That that just didn't wash with them. It it had to be it had to be some baser motive, uh, such as money, or such as the desire to to subjugate the South, to seize the farms. Uh, 
to liberate the slaves, though they'd be false liberators because they always claimed, well, these these people will be liberated, but then just re-enslaved to Yankees, uh, or they spread rumors among their own slaves that the Yankees would sell them all off and send them to Cuba, that sort of thing. So the South is able to maintain, the white South is able to maintain this image of the Yankee as all these bad things. Uh, You have examples where they are writing uh, in in diaries or letters, uh, other places, how, how you can literally tell these northern soldiers by their 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 very stench. They're 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 just so vulgar in in their person, in their language, in their behavior. Uh, that they're a different race almost. And they use that. They that's that's one thing that surprised me in the research. They kept referring to the Yankees as a different race, and of course, in a most race conscious society, that's a very powerful word. Uh, and they also. Uh, on the other hand, they also talk about fear of enslavement by the Yankees. And they don't use that word enslavement in, a, in an ironic way. They, they mean it quite literally. Well, irony uh, is a theme that runs throughout the book. You have these people talking uh, about Northerners and the, the most extraordinary ways uh, uh, it, it, extreme language extreme uh, dehumanization of their enemy do they does it not ever occur to them that they are the ones who are being extreme in this sort of treatment of other human beings there is a bit of that and there is even some debate and I mentioned this a little bit in the book but I didn't find very much of it there is some debate among Southerners, largely based on religion, on whether they should really hate the Yankees as much as they hate them. Um, and I found that interesting, uh, particularly some of the civilians, but also some of the soldiers, sort of worry about the effects of anti-Yankee hatred on themselves. Uh, that is, are they, are they violating Christ's uh, admonition to love their enemies? Uh, the, the one woman says, I don't think Christ could have possibly meant Yankees when he told us to love our enemies. <laughs> uh, but there is some, there is some, there is some hesitation and there's some worry uh, about that effect on, on, on the character of Confederates as well. But it, again, it's, it's not very, uh, it's not very pervasive. It seems to occur among particularly sensitive souls who then are largely able, I think, to rationalize their their hatred in the end, they may stew about it for a bit, but then come to think, well, these really are barbarous folk, so we can we can we can proceed to hate them. And after all, the Yankees are the real haters anyway. You always attribute the you know you you can blame the yeah we hate the Yankees because the Yankees are a hateful people. And and the Yankees hate us. Is, is, exactly is something they, they claim they started it. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's like two kids fighting in the neighborhood. He started it. Yes. Now the 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 idea with students, I've made the point uh, that the two sides in the Civil War are fundamentally from the same culture. They speak the same language, read the same books, hear the same kind of music. Uh, Lincoln famously says, 
in the second inaugural address both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, mm-hmm. and each invokes his aid against the other. And thus, they don't have a deep cultural hatred based on, on language or religion, as, as we see in some parts of the world. And thus, my argument has been that that makes ideology all the more important, because that is the place where they differ. But you seem to be putting a, a, a large quantity of evidence out here that many Southerners really did see this as a, a separate culture, a separate uh, a people. Well, that's the argument, and I, th- I think that is part of the ideology that you that <laughs> you define you define the Yankees as a as a separate people. At the same time, of course, and this is something that I wasn't dealing with in this book, but it's certainly a commonplace in histories of the Confederacy, the Confederates claim to be the true heirs of the American founding fathers. Uh, it's the Yankees that have perverted the, the legacy of the American Revolution. It's the Yankees who have perverted the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, etc. And so Jefferson Davis the and the founders of the Confederacy claim to be the true heirs of the founding fathers. Davis is inaugurated on Washington's birthday under a statue of Washington in, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and so they, 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 they try to claim it. They even debate on whether they have the better right than the Yankees to celebrate the 4th of July. You see some debate about that during the war as well. So they, if they hold this high ground and the... Uh uh, the Yankees hold the, the low ground. One of the points you make is that this this dehumanizes the Yankees, which is a, a necessary precursor for human beings to kill one another. Uh, it's very hard for people to kill uh, kill people, but not hard to hunt animals or kill people who aren't really people. And but we're going to have to take a short break. I'll let you think that one over. Okay. Uh, uh, We'll come back in a minute and talk more about the dehumanization uh, through rhetoric and propaganda during the Civil War. The subject of Damn Yankees, Demonization and Defiance in the Confederate South by George Rabel, our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with George Rabel, author of Damn Yankees, the story of uh, of an analysis and presentation of Confederate vituperation toward Yankees, the language used throughout the war by Southerners to describe uh, the Northern soldiers and their leaders and their civilians back home. We've talked about some of the things that were said, and uh, getting to the the real nitty-gritty, the effect that this had on behavior, uh, George, I suggested that de- uh, dehumanization is the, the outcome of this kind of language, and, and that seems to be one of the most important points in the book. Could you talk about that? Uh, I think it is one of the m- most important points of the book, though it's easy to push it too far, uh, especially when you're dealing with the soldiers, because... To some degree, the soldiers obviously buy into the anti-Yankee invective. Soldiers dehumanize the enemy. Soldiers reach the point where they're not willing to take prisoners or prisoners are abused and that sort of thing. But there are also countless examples of fraternization between the two sides. Uh, and so it's a, it's a very mixed and complex and, 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 contradictory, and contradictory picture. Um, George Orwell pointed out... Uh, that you know the the people that really buy into the propaganda are usually the people farthest removed from the battlefield, and I think that's mm-hmm. probably true of the American Civil War too. Though I was surprised about the degree to which the soldiers bought into it uh, too. But I think the soldiers, their dehumanization of the enemy is much more complex, much more fraught with difficulty and contradictions, and than say the newspaper editors or particularly civilians that are far removed from the front lines. I, I was surprised by that, too, the point about the soldiers. I, I, when we think of Civil War soldiers, there's a tendency to romanticize their, their camaraderie, the shared uh, you know, Frontgemeinschaft of, of uh, uh, soldiers at the front have more in common with the guys on the other side than they do with their own civilians back home. They're the only ones who know what's really at stake here, what it really is to risk your life in this way. And so we have those images of soldiers in the war trading tobacco for coffee between a battle, uh, you know, calling out from one picket post to another. But you have a lot of examples of Confederate soldiers talking about how I want to exterminate every last Yankee. Or blackguarding them, yelling across a river or, you know, across the picket lines, insults and that, that sort of thing. Sure. And again, it's, there's, and probably some of the same people are both fraternizing and condemning. Um, and again, of course, you blame the enemy. Why? You know, they're worse than we are. In fact, this whole bit, an interesting example, uh, which I first developed some in my religion book, but really became apparent when I was dealing with this, was this whole question of swearing. Uh, if soldiers swear, is God going to punish the side that swears the most? That, that kind of problem. But the, 
the Confederate excuse is, well, of course, in the heat of battle or difficult camp conditions, you're going to swear, you're going you're to say a word you shouldn't say from time to time. But the Yankees just do this on a routine basis when there's no reason to do it. You know, we have an excuse to do it, but they don't. Filth just comes out of their mouth all the time. Uh, and so they make that they make that kind of distinction, which is a wonderful illustration of human beings' ability to rationalize their own behavior. I mean, so what's new? <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting to see how these things build; uh, these expectations reinforce themselves. In uh, uh, when Sherman's men are marching through the South, uh, Jacqueline Glass Campbell has made this argument: the uh, uh, the behavior of Southern women resisting those soldiers, treating them with contempt and even using bad language toward them simply for the the northern soldiers reinforced the view that these southern women were no ladies and therefore they did not deserve the treatment of that their their gender entitled them to in the the in the era of, of the, the sphere of domesticity and so the soldiers didn't treat them they they went ahead and treated them rudely which in turn reinforced the southern women's view that the yankee soldiers were barbarians Exactly. Plus, this whole idea of defiance, and of course, how do you? It, it, it's an interesting interpretive question for historians. How do you interpret these these confrontations between these women and these soldiers late in the war? Is this a kind mm-hmm. of empty defiance? Is it a is it a kind of a psychological flight from reality? Is it kind of the last gasp of the Confederacy? Uh, how serious is it um, uh, to the Union soldier, is it exasperating, infuriating, amusing, or anything mm-hmm. in between? Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the more difficult, that's one of the more difficult uh, questions to answer, because obviously historians of the Confederacy over the years, some emphasize the loss of morale, some emphasize the persistence of morale, and you could take exactly the same examples uh, and come to diametrically opposite conclusions. So, so what effect does all this language have? Uh, it, it, it really is impressive how powerful it is. It's stronger than uh, the, the Christian beliefs that its holders have. You gave the example of uh, one person saying, well, you know, love your enemy, but that doesn't include Yankees. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they, they, it, it, it's stronger than, than gender behavior expectations. Mm-hmm. It's passed on to children uh, with no thought of what future consequences that might bring about. It, 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 it's really, uh, it really is important, I guess. It is. Now, of course, to be fair, someone could mm-hmm. accuse me, and I think with some legitimacy, you say, look, this guy w- went out to look at how Confederates defined their enemy, and he, d- mm-hmm. he found a lot of stuff. Uh, now, did everybody do it that way? Uh, did some people have some reservations about it? I, I point to a few examples of some reservations, but I was, I was surprised at how, at how pervasive it was. But uh, like any Civil War study where you try to study soldier opinion or civilian opinion, you know, how many examples are enough to uh, establish a establish a generalization. Uh, years ago, Bill Cooper told me when I was a graduate student, he says, if you've done the research, you have a right to draw conclusions. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. I drew some conclusions and I realized that, you know, 
other people could come to different conclusions, but I think I've done, you know, substantial research on this, and, and obviously more could be done, but uh, it's amazing that these things just kept cropping up and cropping up. This, as I know, is not the subject of your book, but I'm just curious, in, in your other reading, this is just asking for a guess, really, it, is there a northern equivalent well, Jerry, I'm I'm amazed that it took you this long to get to that question. <laughs> uh, whenever I give a talk, that's usually the first question I get I get asked. Um, and I originally toyed with the idea of, of doing both sides in one study. And then I thought, well, I I, I had a three year lead in to do the lectures, and I wanted to write the book and then boil the book down to the lectures because there's an expectation that the Fleming lectures will be published. And I right. thought it would be easier to do the book first and boil it down to the lecture, so I decided not to do the other side. I'm actually working a bit on the other side, and it's, a, it's, it's different. It's mixed, uh, in mm-hmm. part because the goals of the two sides are different. Uh, most Northerners are seeking to keep the Union together, and mm-hmm. that tamps down, I think, I think, some of the hatred. It tamps down some of the invective. Uh, even abolitionists say, you know, we, we need to be more restrained, um, and really across the political spectrum, uh, even though there are obvious expressions of northern hatred, some very strong expressions of northern hatred, it's different, uh, and it's less unified, and it's less directed. And a lot of the northern hatred is partisan hatred against other northerners, <laughs> Republicans and Democrats. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about polarization and political polarization in our own age. Just go back to the just go back to the Civil War. Uh, look at attacks on Republicans or attacks on Democrats in northern newspapers where they blame they blame the other side on fostering hatred in the South or fostering hatred in the North or fostering race hatred, which, of course, is intense um, as well. So it's a much more diffuse um, and somewhat weaker uh, anti-rebel invective, and I think that in turn probably has some uh, effect on Reconstruction as well. That, that That's certainly consistent with what I have seen in, in looking at soldier letters and in various projects. As I was reading your book, I did not, it, it, it occurred to me, I did not see a lot of that kind of extreme language used. That Northern soldiers had almost, I want to say condescending isn't quite the right word, but uh, look at how ignorant these people are. I think condescending is the right word, actually. Maybe it is the right word. Yeah, I, I think so. And they, they, they see Southerners as inferior, not yes. in the same sense that Confederates define Yankees as inferior, but sort of, oh, these poor Southerners, they're just so ignorant, they're so poor. And, and, and some of the Federals clearly believe that these need a big dose of Yankee civilization. They need yes. the Yankee schoolhouse. They need Yankee energy, get up and go, uh, business get that sense barn and painted. that sort of thing. Yeah, it, exactly. It, and one can see again how that would reinforce the cycle back and forth because nothing is, is more enraging than to have your enemy treat you condescendingly rather than respond in kind to, uh, uh, to, to the negative language. So this... And, and you talk about the the, the 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 cycle of violence, both violent words or harsh words and violent actions. You mentioned at the start that 
Confederates complained about Yankee atrocities before there were any. But as the war goes on, you have people like Butler or Pope, uh, or especially Sherman, uh, doing things against civilians that are regarded as atrocities. And then you have retaliation. This is where, for all the book has entertainment value, it becomes discouraging because this kind of back and forth cycle hasn't fully played out yet today. It hasn't, and obviously during the war it affects on how you treat prisoners, uh, mm-hmm. it, it affects uh, how African American troops are, are treated by Confederates, uh, it carries over, it certainly carries over into the Reconstruction period, it's just striking how the same language is used, including uh, denunciations of the uh, of the Yankees as Jacobins, re- referring to the most mm-hmm. radical faction of the French Revolution. That, and that, that term is used even by historians of Reconstruction up into the 1940s. Um, the period of Jim Crow, uh, debates over anti-lynching legislation, you could point to many examples where these, these themes of anti-Yankee invective uh, continue and, and occasionally even you'll you'll hear them today. Now you know they're not nearly as pervasive and they're not they're not quite so frightening today. And today they're more eccentric and maybe more amusing than they used to be because they're less pervasive. But they're still there. They're still there, and some people are still are still pretty serious about. It. Well, I, I don't think there's any question about that. I think most of our listeners probably have an anecdote. Uh, and if they don't have one of their own, they can go online to any number of websites and uh, read people who do still carry these opinions. Uh, and it, it does sometimes make one discouraged uh, for how long it will take to uh, to adopt a more uh, balanced and uh, proportionate view of, of the Civil War as a historical event. Uh, with just a minute or so left, uh, George, are, are you working? Uh, you mentioned a, a project you're working on now. Can you tell more about what what you're doing? Uh, I'm working on a brief study of Lincoln and McClellan, actually, um, which I was working on before I was invited to do the Fleming lectures. Had much of the research done, and then I had to just put it aside to do Damn Yankees, which was well worth doing. But mm-hmm. I'm back on Lincoln and McClellan. Uh, I've written ten mediocre pages. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm intimidated by the literature on both of them. Uh, you know, I'm not writing on a topic that's unknown. Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to have to say is going to be all that uh, exciting or interesting, but at least that's what I'm working on. And I'm ret- comfortably retired now, so it's not going to ruin my career if it doesn't work out. <laughs> Well, I'd, one thing we can be confident of is it will be well written, whatever you present, uh, as this book is, Damn Yankees, Demonization and Defiance in the Confederate South. That's the book by George C. Rabel, our guest tonight. Uh, and listeners, it will uh, enlighten and uh, entertain, discourage, and, and maybe finally give uh, understanding as well. It's a, it's a very interesting book. Uh, George, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. It's been my pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.